Episode 18 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. Welcome to episode 18 of ICO 41. My name is Owen Scott and I'm your podcast host. This podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's a little different about this podcast is that we read the white papers and we investigate the background of the team. And if we can, we spend some time communicating directly with the team in question. And then we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice nor as information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform and not to suggest. This week we're going to dive right into the first token sale because we have an almost 20-minute interview with the CEO of the project that we're covering this week. And so I'll waste no time in jumping in. Our ICO this week is... The B Token. First, just so you can do your own research, the site is thebeetoken.com, and that's spelled B-E-E, like the amazing insect that pollinates our fruits and flowers all over the world. The Bee Token, and the Bee White Paper, lays out what amounts to not only a specific solution for a specific problem, namely the sharing of short-term housing rentals peer-to-peer, kind of like Airbnb on the blockchain, but also a platform. And if you remember our podcast a few podcasts ago where we covered Lambda, you'll remember that one of the things that developers of blockchain solutions need is some sort of environment to enable relatively streamlined development of distributed applications. And that's what this Beanist network aims to be, a solution for peer-to-peer home rentals, but but also a development environment that facilitates blockchain applications using what are known as the B protocols. And this idea from a business perspective is that the company behind the B protocols will generate revenue as others use its platform to develop their applications. And then through some small fee arrangements, those fees will help generate revenue and power the use of the protocols. You know, this actually reminds me of a story. A number of years ago, I, I did a little bit of consulting work for a company named Epic Games. Now, if you're a gamer, you probably know who they are. They, they developed uh, a game which was very, very popular for quite some time before they sold it to Microsoft. It was called Gears of War. But when I worked with them, I learned a pretty interesting fact that the main reason they created that game was actually to show off what their real product was which was the so-called Unreal Engine. Now, that's a game development platform. And it's a very popular game development platform since a lot of very high-profile companies use that engine for their games. And what I learned was that Epic did just as well with the licensing of its Unreal Engine than it did with the development of its own games. This was a while ago. Uh, In fact, I understand now that Epic is still developing games, uh, some next-gen games like Fortnite, Battle Royale, and things. In fact, on a recent post on the Unreal Engine forum, Tim Sweeney, 
mentioned that it pretty much switches year to year between the games that they produce and the engine in terms of their revenue stream, or at least which is higher. And all of this is just to point out that from a business viability perspective, it's not a bad idea at all to have two revenue streams, one from the licensing of your intellectual property and the other for whatever service that you're offering, whatever hosted or peer-to-peer service or distributed, in this case, service that you're offering. So I would say that in terms of business viability and conceptually, uh, I would say that uh, B is on the right track here. Let's talk about the team. Uh, The team, mainly from Silicon Valley area, the executives of the company have worked for Uber, Facebook, Google. Some of them have connections with the more traditional venture capital space up there in Northern California. All in all, it's an impressive team, as far as I could tell, with solid connections in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, and that entire region up there, which is, as you know, I guess you could say a crucible of new ideas coming out of technology. Now, you're going to be able to hear from the CEO yourself in just a few minutes, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time going over the team uh, or even much about the B protocols uh, with the usual kind of detail I do, because you can hear it from the source yourself. Uh, But I do want to discuss the white paper a little bit here. Uh, I like the white paper. That's mainly why I agreed to interview Jonathan Chow, uh, the CEO, uh, when I heard from them. I like the idea of the platform, this, this concept of a distributed application platform to allow other developers to work easily with some very specific protocols to help them. I feel like the white paper also does a good job of explaining the dilemma and by virtue of the dilemma, the opportunity, where you've got these groundbreaking, disrupting technologies like Airbnb and Uber. They're actually a little bit vulnerable to disruption themselves when you consider a more distributed technology to drastically reduce those fees. Because where are those fees going? Well, they're going to Airbnb and Uber. So I think it's pretty fascinating, actually, if you think about this. Um, This short-term housing market and let's just say the ride for higher industries. Let's just take them at their very baseline. Short-term housing market, ride for higher industries. Let's think about how long they have existed for. I would say around 5,000 years, right? I mean, at the very baseline, 5,000 years, I would say. And they really haven't changed a great deal in those 5,000 years until very recently, Because suddenly they were turned on their heads by the fact that technology has made it possible to conduct business efficiently peer-to-peer. Well, actually, we should qualify that, right? Almost peer-to-peer. More like peer-to-Uber-to-peer or peer-to-Airbnb-to-peer, right? Because there is something in the middle there. But nevertheless, these types of industries were very recently disrupted after thousands of years of operating fundamentally the same way. This new technology has opened it up, cracked it open, so to speak. Now, what's interesting is that, what are we on, three or four years now since that happened? And now, the likes of Airbnb, Uber need to start looking over their shoulders to the next disruptors. And what would that be? Well, if you believe B and some of the others that are out there cracking away at this, It's going to be the blockchain. 
So it's kind of a interesting world we live in right now, right? <laughs> that disruption lasted just a few years. I mean, I know there's many more to go, and I know that it has to be proven, but still, very interesting stuff. Anyway, back to this white paper. Uh, besides the B protocols themselves, which I'll let Jonathan explain in the interview, uh, there is a well-thought-out arbitration system. It's carefully documented, and we discuss it a little bit in the interview. And one thing that I liked about this white paper was not only the thought behind the arbitration system, but even, in fact, the the why. There's a section that's actually titled, Why Tokenize? It's a good point. I see a lot of white papers that don't spend much time or any time on the why of tokenization. This white paper explains why a direct use of Ethereum wouldn't work as well as a native token. And then they actually go on to explain and mention the benefit of a side chain. We've heard that one before as well. It's all good ideas. One of the other things that I like about this white paper are some of the technical aspects of it, where there's workflows, there's functions, there's uh, what we call in my industry entity and attribute definitions, uh, data types, and so that part of it, I liked that part of the white paper. So really, as, as I see how white papers go, not bad job at all. Let's talk about the roadmap. Q4 of 2017, which is basically last week, shows white paper release, an alpha prototype launch, some partners with auditing firms to audit the smart contracts, and some other partnerships uh, up around the San Francisco area. And it looks to me like they've already hit those milestones. Uh, I was recently invited to try out their beta software, and I see that there's no less than eight partnerships lined up. You know, these are companies like Ochain and Rentivo and Guardium, among others, established companies up in that uh, Bay Area. Q1 and 2 of 2018, we're kind of just starting that. Uh, they have a plan for an MVP launch, especially for the crypto community, uh, using uh, hacker houses. Be interesting. Um, they also have some integrations planned with uh, Know Your Customer platforms. And uh, they also plan an audit of their code on a testnet during that phase. That's coming up in the next few months. And then the uh, second part of 2018, uh, they're going to expand to more different types of hosts, uh, some actual A-B testing with uh, live hosts, actually renting out to actual guests. They also want to expand the arbitration pools and the arbitration panels around the world. And it's uh, during this time frame, actually, in the third and fourth quarter of 2018, that they plan to go live with the platform. And then 2019, it's all about expansion, expansion of the Venus sharing network. It's also expansion of the development of the platform for third-party development. Uh, they're looking at things like smart contract-driven lockboxes. And if you think about that, I've, I've thought about that lately. I, that's actually a very powerful use case, if you think about it. That's where there's a lockbox on a rental property. And it's released on payment. And then after checkout, maybe some inspectors or cleaners, basically people come clean the house probably, upload whatever data to the network. And then that facilitates possibly an automatic return of the deposit money or not, depending on what is uploaded or what the status is. And then if it goes to it, it has to go to arbitration. You can just imagine how logistically easy it might be to rent out your place if the deposit, the payment, security, access to the property, dispute management, and resolution is mostly automated. Tremendous efficiencies there. Actually, to be honest, some of those ideas could work in a centralized environment. And I'm, 
I'm a little bit surprised that you don't see it more often as it is now. But the fact that it can work, you know, tokenized and on a blockchain is pretty compelling. Let's talk about the token and the sale. Uh, the name of the token is the B token, B-E-E. Uh, the company launched a pre-sale, I think it was $5 million, and it sold out in five minutes. That was according to Twitter. That happened uh, just a few days ago, four or five days ago. Uh, the total supply uh, will be 500 million B tokens, uh, and the total hard cap, as far as I understand it, is uh, $15 million. So not asking for the moon here. Uh, let's talk about SEC compliance. Now, this is a company uh, that I've noticed has paid careful attention to the SEC and to compliance, it looks like to me. First of all, the pre-sale was conducted for accredited investors only. The minimum investment was 50 Ether. And that comes to around $40,000 each. And according to the Telegram channel, uh, the public sale, which has a minimum investment of 0.1 Ether, will actually be closed to U.S. investors because of, you guessed it, unclear compliance regulations in the United States. And it's a United States company, of course, and they plan to do business in the United States, but they've carefully orchestrated this such that they are protecting themselves against what we've kind of been talking about over the last month or so about the SEC. Another very interesting thing that I learned this week uh, through my research of this project was that this company closed their bounty program in the middle of December. And that was announced on their Bitcoin Talk announcement page. And I was wondering why that was, and I, I followed the link there. Turns out there was an article posted on Hacker Noon that explained that bounties of all of these ICOs could have been construed by the Securities and Exchange Commission, or perhaps were construed, as violations of security laws. And that's mainly because promotional material for the solicitation of securities has to be identified in the promotional material. So all those blogs and those posts and those videos and goodness knows what else, even translations, actually, I wouldn't be surprised, are supposed to contain disclosures that the material is promotional and that the creators are compensated for what they're writing. And the article was literally written as an obituary for the bounty program for ICOs in general. And at least in this case, it certainly was that because uh, the, the B uh, token sale immediately shut down uh, the bounty program. Very, very interesting to me. Uh, I, I wonder if other ICOs will just wholesale eliminate bounties from their projects because maybe of that article or because the SEC is really starting to come down in this fashion. And I, if that happens, you know, I've got mixed mixed feelings about that. I mean, I, I laud the SEC for cracking down on scammers. No question about it. They, the last, was it last week or the week before? Unbelievable. But one thing about the bounties, as annoying as they may have been, and certainly annoying as they may have been for the poor people who have to run these ICOs and get incessant questions about them, is just that the bounties were ways for people who don't have a lot of money or any money to participate in the crowd sale. So this is sort of another door closed on those kinds of people. Now, fortunately, they're still mining, thank goodness, with a little bit of technical ability and a halfway decent video card or even a CPU on some of these coins. They're still that. 
But the fact that the bounties went away, it's just, it's a little bit uh, disappointing to me if they do actually all go away, because it was a way for people who otherwise would not be able to participate. Anyway, let's talk about the reaction from the community. The company's pretty much done everything right when it comes to interacting with the community. Uh, Their first announcement on Bitcoin Talk was back in September. They ended up moving the thread and splitting it up between a bounty thread and an announcement thread. Obviously, you have to do that. And then uh, most of the activity, though, and I think they wisely did this, was, was then sort of encouraged to go over to Telegram. Now, they answered every question that came up on Bitcoin Talk, but uh, as it became apparent, people started posting like, hey, check out their Telegram channel because it was really active. And it was. The team really flourished on that Telegram channel as far as I can tell. Right now, as of today, there's 8,000 members. And you know, just typical of this chaotic crypto environment that we're all in where we get to chat with the CEOs and you know, just sort of hammer on the team, uh, the people who are asking all these questions all the time. Uh, there's some scams. There's some crazy little things, drama going on. There was a temporary hijack of the Twitter account by some ex- ex-employee. But all, all in all, though, they did a very, very good job of interacting with the community. And they're really on top of answering everything, everywhere that I could see. Business viability, I see the business viability for a couple of reasons. First of all, I like the idea of two revenue streams. The fact that you can release a platform and get some revenue from that, sort of like Epic Games did, and a good set of APIs uh, that are available for developers, that's that's very good stuff. And then, of course, the business viability of disrupting something like Airbnb, to me, not bad at all. Uh, let's next hear from Jonathan Chow, the CEO of B, and then I'll come back and I'll deliver my final takeaway afterward, and then after that, we'll have time, I hope, for a second project. We are very fortunate to have today uh, with us the co-founder and CEO of Beanist, uh, which is putting out the B token token sale upcoming soon. His name is Jonathan Chow, and he's with us today. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you. You know, I, I read your white paper. I looked at your website. It's very well put together. It makes a lot of sense to me. I'd like to just get started. If you could just give us an idea about your background a little bit and what led you uh, toward blockchain. Yeah, so I've been in blockchain for a few years and progressively getting more and more involved in it. So at first, just very passive investments, buying a little bit of each coin, and then becoming more active investments where you go, oh, this token sale or this new token is really cool. And finally, most recently, I was full-time at Uber, being a tech lead on the security and fraud team. And about six months ago, left to start a cryptocurrency startup full time because it's just becoming more and more engaging and involved and had to spend that amount of time. I suppose uh, it must have been actually very interesting to work at Uber, which is really one of the preeminent sharing environments. And yet to think about it and approach it from the perspective of, of or approach the sharing concept and then use blockchain as a way to make it better, so to speak. Uh, did that idea occur to you sort of uh, as you became more experienced with just the sharing, the different kinds of challenges when you have a sharing protocol? Or was it blockchain first and then you just sort of worked in the sharing aspect of it? I think the idea is not too original. 
So when you think of blockchain, it has the ability to remove the middleman. So I guess it is a little bit blockchain first. And then when you think of removing the middleman, you do think of sharing economies by default because they usually have the middleman in the middle and then they extract the value out. And I think Uber and Airbnb are the big ones in that in that area. Um, it's been written about in multiple books. It's not like I came up with, with this idea. Even Vitalik speaks of a decentralized Uber pretty often. So, so I think I think it probably was blockchain first, and then decentralizing big middleman, and that inevitably led to decentralizing Uber or Airbnb. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, to me, the it's it's what you might call maybe low hanging fruit in the sense that if you look at the business model. Uh, I mean, I, it's obviously a revolutionary concept to be able to just let anybody who owns a car or owns a home or who owns just about anything to be able to share parts of what they're not using. You know, it's such a fundamental concept. In a way, it's kind of an obvious choice, but there are, I think, some devil in the details, I guess. And I, I think I read some of those in, in, the, in the white paper and you know, there's there's this concept of arbitration. There's complexities, and I, my understanding from doing a little bit of research is that Airbnb has issues just in general with with the arbitration process. Yeah, definitely. I think there's pros and cons to both. So for a centralized, you have the call a central call center, and they have their own certain way of doing things. And then in a decentralized arbitration manner, you then have a panel of judges, quote unquote, decentralized through the world. So it's more like a jury system. It's a little bit more relatable. They're they're not trained in any specific way. Uh, but then but then the way they come to the conclusion, it it could be a little bit more different than expected. I, in fact, I've, based on your white paper, it looks like you've spent quite a bit of thought around the arbitration system, and and I I think that's very laudable and interesting. I mean, the very fact that there's not just one person doing the arbiting, you know, that you've actually got a panel that you're thinking of it as sort of a jury. And I have a few questions about that in general. But what I want to do is, um, you know, this podcast tends to be a little bit on the technical side, and that's only because that's my background. So, uh, you know, I, I, I might be asking a couple of uh, uh, sort of technical questions. And uh, I'd like to just get started with just an examination of certain elements of the white paper, if that's okay with you. Sure. Um, okay, great. So what I like about your white paper is that it is it goes a little bit beyond just solving one little narrow use case, which is just property sharing. It, it's an actual ecosystem. It's actually a platform to build applications on, distributed applications. That's very, very interesting to me. And uh, what what are some of the tasks that the B, that these B protocols, you, you talk about these B protocols in the white paper, which are interesting to me. What are some of those tasks that developers would use those protocols for that would simplify what their challenges are when it comes to developing applications on the B on the B platform. Sure. So I think we can start by really quickly going over what the B protocols are. We call them the PAR protocols. The P stands for payments. Ethereum is a general no bias blockchain. It's not really meant to do anything other than pure access to the blockchain, which is already amazing. But then how do you build a real world business without a payment system being able to handle all of this? So I think for any business that needs that, it's going to be huge. A is for arbitration, and that's having that judicial panel in, making sure that you can bring the subjectivity of the blockchain and solving it with the judicial system. And then R is for reputation, which, which takes care of KYC, immutable reviews, uh, government checks, and integrating with popular cryptocurrency identity checks. So all of that. We, we see this to be really 
common among a lot of cryptocurrency startups facing the same problems over and over because so many of these two side marketplaces or trusted sharing economies need a payment system, an arbitration system, a reputation system. So we definitely already onboarding a few people uh, privately and, and we think that this will bootstrap their uh, development cycles really quick because then you don't have to think of a similar idea for a different space and then rebuild all the same things. You can just kind of take it and tweak it as you need it. So it'd be like libraries for like payment. Like, okay, so you need you need to make payments. Okay, look, here's our libraries for payments. Here's our protocols for payments and an and API as well. Like you'll have like possibly, I think you mentioned in the white paper, the possibility of uh, third party integrations. You know, just sort of like they'll just come in with the, with the system, right? Yeah, exactly. So they can literally come in and they can specify some parameters and then they're good to go. That's of course, excellent. if they want additional functionality, then they'll build that, but the base case will be there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Actually, I mean, I've been helping build software for a number of years now, and a lot of times that is, it's those little details, especially with respect to integration. That's half the battle sometimes. Um, uh, one thing that I have a question about, and I see you have a nice graphic on page 10, which shows the different kinds of uh, applications, and then there's a front-end server. Now, when you think about certain architectures, and I'm thinking just generally about something like Stellar Lumens or something like that, where there are servers, but those servers themselves are distributed. In this architecture, is the Beanist front-end server run by Beanist, or is it actually something that on a distributed model, certain nodes would actually be able to run? Yeah, so I, I think when we're talking about front-end technology, we're not in a fully decentralized world yet. So we're hosting them on uh, classic cloud storage, routing it through AWS, Cloudflare, all services. We think we're a little too early to have a decentralized server hosting, but looking forward to it. No, I understand that. Actually, that's interesting. There are other, I, I just did an ICO uh, analysis about, oh, I want to say a month and a half ago. And they they actually, it was very, I believe, I believe it was called uh, BitJob. And they uh, they finished their ICO months ago. And they actually had a one, two, it was definitely a, an evolutionary process, it was on their roadmap. They started out with, with some centralization for, for some servers. They were actually thinking realistically. I know that that was kind of interesting and laudable, that they were actually thinking like, hey, you know what, it's not going to be that easy to just distribute a bunch of servers. So what we'll do is we'll, the first phase will be that, and then down the road, we'll start to distribute some of those servers when it becomes a little bit more tenable and they're, they're further along down in their roadmap. Uh, let's talk about the token a little bit. I like the fact that there's quite a few uses for the token, and one of them will be payment. Uh, obviously, there's arbitration and things like that. Just, to, just taking, taking a couple steps back, how are the tokens actually generated? Is, is this through a proof-of-stake minting process, or is it proof-of-work, or is it distribution? Yeah, so the first, the initial part is distribution. So we'll, we'll, we'll be issuing the tokens through typical ICO and pre-sale. And after that, our ecosystem is more important for you to participate in the ecosystem than to prove like the validity of a block or transaction. So for us, we call it proof of judging. So if you partake in the jury system or you partake in other parts of the ecosystem, then you can earn B tokens in that way, like leaving a review. We see that as tokens go more mainstream, it might not make sense to buy a mining rig in order to earn B token. It's not as plausible. And so that's kind of where we're thinking. Right. So you're tying the distribution of tokens through more physical or more traditional methods of contribution, of people contributing their energy, contributing their skill sets. 
Now, in that sense, is the network any kind of permissioned base or is it an entirely public network where anybody can join or is there any sort of consortium based or permission type semi-private hybrid blockchain network involved? So for us, the, the smart contracts will all be public. It's very important for people to see that, hey, this payment protocol works as intended and it's not like obfuscated by some crazy right. uh, thing hidden. Like, oh, you put it in and it disappears for a while, comes back out. So, so all of the smart contracts will be will be public. The backend code will probably not be public because, of course, that will then show all of our validation checks, and it'll make hackers very easily prone to attack our centralized uh, servers. But, but all of the smart contracts uh, should be should be public for sure. And do you know, do you anticipate any kind of distributed node system where certain stakeholders in the network will run multiple nodes that are maintaining the network in a distributed fashion. Is there is that part of your architecture in some degree? I think so. So so for us, the, the nodes would be the judges. So basically, as we distribute the number of judges or the number, number of users on our platform, because of course, that's how we distribute the tokens, then the more people that are distributing and receiving the tokens, the less likely it will be that our system is compromised. So you can imagine from a small pool of judges, they could potentially make the decisions in a, in a certain or bias the decisions in a certain way because there's they, they have over 51% of the right, judges. Collude. They could collude, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, it's collusion. You want to try to avoid that, I suppose. Yeah. So, so for us, the nodes in our system would actually just be raw population because that's how you get, uh, earn the tokens. Like how, that's how the, what the nodes would be valuable. All right. For. That makes sense. Interesting. I, again, going back to the arbitration, I do like the way that you've thought this out. Now, there's a panel. You were saying a panel of five judges. Well, five five arbiters. <laughs> uh, and, and I imagine this is something, you know, we're talking about people's homes here. I, I have a feeling that this occurs a little bit more than people would like to admit, like than, than, than maybe Airbnb or, or others want to really admit. I mean, I imagine this this is an issue. I imagine that this comes up. And so when you have this panel of five, and you know I've I've looked at the way that you've 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 listed it out there, and I see that there could be like a three-two decision. Yep. And if a three-two decision, let's say, results in uh, the money, right, going a certain direction, whether it's to the host or to the guest or whatever, in some kind of uh, maybe not so mutually agreeable way because they are after all a panel and they've reviewed all the evidence and it goes in a certain direction. If the judges, I noticed that there was actually a reputation score where they could get penalized a little bit if if there's a repetitive, if they seem to have this track record of going the, the way that nobody's happy. So let's say, let's say they have, you know, there's this panel and, and, and there's three of them that want to go one way and two goes the other way. And the decision goes the way that no one's happy. And that happens a few times. How, how does the reputation affected or is it affected on the minority vote? Yeah, our co-founder is his specialty is artificial intelligence. Cool. So for us, what we're mostly trying to do is aggregate all that data before we can make true decisions on it because we do need a little bit of data. That being said, one of the interesting parts of our judicial system is there's always a higher order of judicial court. So, for example, if you want to file a quote-unquote appeal to a higher level of court, and that's probably where you will stake higher amounts of V-token in order to be a judge at the higher level, right. then you can get that, that re-evaluated so that you're not locked to that decision. Most people should will be happy with the decision because it, it will be for a reasonable case. But for people who really feel they need a second or even third review, then there will be different levels of the judicial system which you can propagate up uh, the appeal to. 
That makes sense. You know, what's interesting about this is that the whole arbitration system and, and, and getting back to sort of this idea of, of, of a platform, what's interesting about this, and, I, and I'm not going to ask if you envision this, and I suppose it's probably in the white paper, but if somebody wants to develop an application around any other type of sharing or even, in fact, any other type of arbitration system that the Beanist platform could actually be used. Yeah, and, and this is definitely one of our goals as well because one of our ways of making revenue would, would ideally be to commission out our protocols to applications for a minimal fee, like maybe 1% to 2%, and that, that could be huge if their app blows up. So we're uh, coming coming from like the, the big software companies. We're very interested in build, building scalable, uh, reusable systems, and that's actually one of, one of the the parts we focus on being generic or being reusable. So so we definitely do plan on that. We actually already have some projects building on top of us. That's excellent. That's very good. Yeah, I uh, I, I really think that it's uh, a very interesting project you got going there, John. And uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on today and, and talking a little bit about it. Is there anything that you'd like to add uh, to what we talked about? Nope. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that's excellent, man. Well, good. I wish you the best on this. Tell me, when does the sale, uh, the public sale, when does the public sale start? Our public sale is January 31st, btoken.com, B-E-E. B-E-E-token.com, January 31st. That's fantastic. And uh, how long is it going to run for? It's going to run until it sells out or a month, whichever one is shorter. Yeah. And actually, if I'm not mistaken, you had a pre-sale and it did sell out. Uh, sooner than anticipated, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. so we we did see quite a high demand, and we're honored. It's excellent. It's excellent. Hey, let me ask you another question because this is something that I, as I go, you know, each each week, one of my favorite things to do is to engage with the community and the the people who are running these ICOs. And if you if you were to give some advice, let's say to anybody who would potentially even go down this road if you've been thinking of such a thing. What, what would be your favorite method of engaging with the community? And I know that we have a lot of channels, right? There's there's all kinds of, there's Discord, there's Telegram, there's BitcoinTalk.org, there's Reddit, there's all kinds. Like what, what if you would, if you don't mind sharing, what, what would be sort of a strategy or what lessons learned maybe, what were some interesting ways that you found to engage with, uh, with, the, with the crypto community in general? Yeah, I think I think the most important part of building a community is to be be really active and also transparent and get other people excited. I think that's the whole reason why cryptocurrency is becoming, um, I guess, mainstream because it, ha- it has like this cultish ability to make people excited about it. And, and, and I think when you're trying to build your community, that it's the same thing. You shouldn't be like answering the questions just to answer the questions. You should be answering the questions to get them more excited about it. And my favorite medium of communication is Telegram, because before starting this project, I was the guy on the channel asking questions to other projects <laughs> like, hey, uh, I, I'm interested in, in potentially participating. Could you let me know this, this and this? And I realized like if they gave me really good answers or even gave me a little bit more info than I had asked for that excited me. Then I would stay on that channel. I would even tell people about it. I think that that's kind of the methodology we've been doing. We've been really working. Uh, we've been working on this project for six months, but but only after we built up working prototype and and had a little bit of uh, a leeway. That then we started going a little bit more public. So we have like those golden nuggets to share with people to make them feel like proud. 
That's excellent. I, I agree with you. I think Telegram is one of the best channels out there. Telegram and Discord, it's it's just yeah. such a seamless – I mean, how often – I mean, you're up there in Silicon Valley, so you know the area. But, I mean, how often were you able to just sort of – in considering an investment in a startup, be able oh. to get the ear of the CEO in like, you know, in, in seconds? I mean, that's yeah. just amazing. And, and, and I imagine one of the challenges might be to actually maintain those Telegram channels. That can't, can't be easy because you've got all kinds of people dropping in. And uh, it, it's, it's one of my most favorite uh, aspects of researching these ICOs. So, and I know that you guys have your work cut out for you in that regard in terms of just maintaining that line of communication. But uh, I see that you have a Telegram channel uh, as well as uh, Medium and, and, and Twitter and Facebook right on your website. So I'm sure that uh, listeners will be dropping in and uh, checking you out. Yeah, yeah. We, we would appreciate it. We love our community, um, love, love our team as well. They're so hardworking. And, yeah, yeah, that's excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks again. And please give my best to everybody on the team. Cool. Thank you for having me. Yeah, take care. Okay, well, we were lucky to have somebody come and talk to us this week. I appreciated that very much. My final takeaway this week is that I feel like the team is solid, concept is good. Uh, I really would like to see some sort of unseating or at least some sort of competition against the likes of Airbnb, even if it causes them to reduce their fees a little bit. I welcome it. Uh, I think the team has what it takes to deliver this. And I think that they have the right kind of connections up there in Northern California, uh, the technical, the business backgrounds to pull it off. So I would say that this is definitely a project to watch. So again, this week, I'm very happy to say that we have a little bit of time to cover another project. And like we usually do, this one has been around for for quite a bit. Uh, The project belongs to that class of coin releases that are not, strictly speaking, ICOs at all. They're not token sales. Now next week, we're going to plan to cover a host of these coins in a special edition devoted just to masternodes. But this week, I want to take a look at one of them. It's Ganja Coin. Ganja Coin is also known as MRJA. Uh, It's a coin that was originally released as 420G. This is way back in late 2016. And then in February, it was hard forked and swapped over to MRJA. I believe a new developer took over. And the developer that took over and is running this one is concerned about social issues. And they've released more than one project designed to bring relief to people in lower income brackets, as well as those with specific economic issues. Now, this particular coin... Uh, MRJA, is more devoted to the marijuana industry, and it's designed to allow investors who wish to invest in the industry a way to do so using cryptocurrency. Uh, The version that we're talking about now was more or less sort of formally resurrected in September of 2017 as a masternode coin. One thing to understand about these coins is that the life cycle kind of goes like this. Coins announced and the details how to mine the coin are posted. Now, there's usually not too much of one, but sometimes there's a pre-mine, usually about 5 to 10%. Normally, anything more than that begins to raise a little bit of eyebrows for these types of coins. Once the network is up and running and people have mined some coins, usually a masternode architecture is released, which allows people to have mined those coins to set up a masternode and stake those coins for a healthy return. This is the normal life cycle. 
Now, once there's a number of master nodes, the next step, and this step, of course, is also the concurrent step, is to get listed on at least one exchange. And that way, the coin will have value. And also, people can elect to buy enough coins on the exchange to run a master node themselves for more staking. And then, of course, another part of this project or lifecycle is to get listed on the master node sites. And one of the things that you'll see with these types of coins is that there's a community that sometimes can be pretty impatient with things if they don't happen quite as fast as the investors apparently need them to, or some investors. But for this project, I did some careful analysis. I read all the posts I could on Bitcoin Talk. There were several threads. I joined the Discord channel. I read the entire history. What I found was that for Ganja Coin, it looked to me like a project that was sincere. The developer has stuck through the inevitable bumpy and rough early times. And this is a coin where the master node is still fairly affordable. This is a project that I think is a good representation of a bootstrap project. It starts out not a huge team, somebody who's really dedicated, starts to gather people around them, get excitement built, and work, 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 and then just get it sort of organically grown. This is a good representative project. If you want to learn about this, Go to Bitcoin Talk, look up Ganja Coin, find the Discord channel, and just start paying attention and listening and watching and reading. And um, maybe download a wallet and maybe mine a little bit. But the point is, is that I think this is a good representative project of that kind of coin and that kind of uh, method of participating in cryptocurrency investing. So... That's it for this week, and uh, see you next week. Thank you.